Melissa Velez, but most people at work just call me Mel. And welcome to As Told By. I work for The Clearing. The Clearing is a change management consulting firm based out of Washington, D.C. We're focused on partnerships that unlock real transformation and outfit leaders to have meaningful lives and to make an extraordinary contribution to causes that really matter. In this podcast, you'll be hearing from industry leaders paving a new path forward and redefining what change looks like. Here, you'll get a better sense of who we are, what we do, and how we think. These are our stories, and we're so excited to share them with you. In today's episode, we're sitting down with Hans Mansky, who is a principal at The Clearing. Hans has a passion for making an impact and exploring and executing thought-provoking big ideas through a lens of access and equity for all. In his new book, Democratizing Big Ideas, Hans delves into the most valuable concepts, frameworks, and insights that leaders from around the world would give to their younger selves if they could go back in time. Hans, welcome to the podcast. Hey there. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Of course. Before we jump in, I just want to ask, what mood, what vibe are you bringing in today? How are you showing up? How are you feeling? Um, feeling focused and really excited to to dive into this topic um, about my book and some of the ideas that, that live inside of it. I think it's a really, really timely uh, and, and, and important time to kind of d- jump into some of these ideas. So really looking forward to it. And like I said, thanks again for the opportunity. Absolutely. We are so excited to hear more and just pick your brain. Uh, so before we jump in, we just want our listeners to get a better sense of who you are and what you're about. Uh, so how does that sound? Sounds great. Perfect. So for starters, I hear you're an exquisite storyteller from some of our dear coworkers. Um, so before we jump in, I just want to know a little bit about you, where you come from, you know, what could you tell us about, you know, your hometown and just life in general growing up? Yeah, um, absolutely. So a little bit about me. I was uh, born and raised in San Antonio, Texas, the child of two high school teachers. My mom was a Spanish teacher and my dad was a calculus and computer science teacher. And um, this is is one thing that I dive into a little bit, actually, in the introduction of my book, um, in doing some thinking and some kind of retrospect on my childhood and kind of why this topic, why this idea is important to me. I made the connection that um, I grew up, as I said, the son of two high school teachers. I felt really confident that my parents could answer any question that I could think (laughs) of to ask them, literally any questions. They have to be able to. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, um, and and so at any rate, I I grew up in in South Texas in that environment. I kind of, as I was thinking about finishing up my, uh, my kind of primary schooling and thinking about what I wanted to do, shifting into college, um, the short answer is I really didn't know. I had so many uh, interests and uh, areas that I wanted to explore, desires yeah. that I wanted to, to get a little bit clearer on and uh, realized pretty quickly that uh, a liberal arts school would be good for me uh, because it allowed me to dabble in a lot of those things and test things out um, in a you know in, a, in an environment that was where it was okay to do that basically. So um, I yeah. ended up focusing on uh, I just did a lot of reading and writing in school. Um, I was an English and history major, and um, I, when I graduated from college, um, I ended up going into the world of journalism. I did some freelance journalism as my first kind of gig out of college and realized pretty quickly that that deadline kind of, uh, the daily deadline setup was not for me. So um, <laughs> that was my first foray. And I said, okay, well, you know, this, this world of writing still intrigues me, even though I figured out that journalism perhaps isn't my thing. And um, I got another job, my first job actually in Washington, D.C. at a place called CQ Press, which is a, a publisher, a political a poli-sci, political science and academic publisher. And I was like a the most junior book editor of all time at basically <laughs> for about a year. And by surprise, um, realized that that also was not for me. It was just a wee bit detail oriented, um, did not play to my strengths, shall we say. So. 
Um, all that by way of saying, I, uh, I, I just, frankly, through a, a shared connections and fortuitous happenstance happened to um, discover the world of management consulting and got to work at um, the, the founders of the Clearing, Chris Mogoff and John Miller, at their previous company, a place called Touchstone Consulting Group. Uh, worked there for eight years and then joined the clearing about six years ago or so. Um, so that's a little bit about my my work experience, kind of how I ended up here. Um, yeah, a little bit about me. Awesome. Love that. So from a young age, have you always wanted to write a book? I hear since you were a history major and I think writing or English, you said. That's right. You always wanted to write a book or did you just come across this the past couple of years and you wanted to put pen to paper? What was that process like? Yeah, great question. I have always wanted to write a book, um, believe it or not. So even from, (laughs) you know, I can't, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that I could pinpoint an exact age, uh, you know, or my first recollection of that, but it was at from a very young age, I would feel safe saying. Um, so the the kind of hang up for me is I think it is for a lot of people that maybe have the desire to write a book or, or you know, really take on any massive project, I would say that feels really big is that is just that, right? It feels way too big. Like, where do you begin? Yeah. Um, what's the first thread that you pull of what seem probably like thousands of threads, right? Um, yeah, so, I can't imagine. I wouldn't even know where to begin. It yeah. just sounds like an enigma. <laughs> well, the, so the good news is, is that um, through this wonderful network called The Clearing, um, I th- this opportunity came up. We had a connection into a really cool book writing seminar and course at Georgetown University. Um, we have some connections in there through a lot of our coaching work. Um, we've and certified people for coaching certifications through Georgetown. Um, it's called the Creators Institute. And it is a year long program that covers everything from you have a, des- I mean, you literally begin with, I have a desire to write a book. I'm not even sure like what it would be about. I have maybe an idea, right. not even a thesis, you know, um, <laughs> all the way from that stage to you're holding a copy of your print finalized, printed, you know, bound book a year later. Um, so wow, it's a, awesome. yeah, it's a fast um, process that covers a lot of ground, but they really um, have a structure set up that helps uh, shepherd you through the content creation part, the actual creative phase of the writing, the editing, um, all of that stuff taken together, as well as all of the publishing steps, which is a, a world that I knew absolutely nothing about, but um, am wrapping up the process on right now. So it's been quite a journey. So going into that, did you have an idea, Go like what exactly you wanted to write about, or did they really help you craft, you know, put it all together? What, how did you go into that process? Yeah, good, good question. So I, I had a couple of calls with uh, the leader of the Creator Institute, a guy named Eric Kester, um, who has shepherded uh, hundreds of authors kind of through the process, uh, not only of the, the actual writing and that creative phase, but helping them get clear on what in particular they would like to explore through the vehicle of a book, basically. And for me, what was showing up was Um, I've always been fascinated and I think kind of had a proclivity towards um, frameworks, uh, things like Clifton Strengths and 360 uh, feedback frameworks that leaders use, as well as just um, concepts and ideas that help people um, boil really complex things down to something that feels a bit more digestible. So for example, our primes, right, at the clearing um, are, are, are a kind of primary example. And so I talked through some of those interests, for lack of a better term, um, with with Eric. And he helped me really, he, you know, asked me some guiding questions, kind of poked and prodded a little okay. bit. We tested some assumptions that I had, and we kind of landed uh, on you have a, an opinion and a perspective to offer based on where you are in your career, right? You have some, some years under your belt um, uh, and you're not 
you know, so far down the path of your, of your professional, you know, journey, so to speak, right. that um, you cannot also still connect back with, with young people, really, or people just embarking on their careers, or maybe they don't even know what they want to do yet, right? So um, mm-hmm. we really kind of settled on these, this dual lens of, um, of equity, right? Opening up the door and the access points to these big ideas for anyone, right? Um, regardless of your socioeconomic background or whether you were privileged like I was to have a connection, a personal connection into um, this business world, right? That I probably never would have been able to embark on without. So um, that's one of the lenses that we thought about. Um, and then the and then the other is just, um, is, is really that age dynamic that I talked about as well. So there's an equity lens and, and also kind of a generational or age lens as well. Right. Um, I start to tackle some of these big ideas through. So what what's the goal for someone coming out of reading your book? Like, what are you hoping for them to achieve? Like the biggest key takeaway, what would you want them to, you know, take away into their next job or their next career, if they're having a career change or if they're going into school? Like, what's that one thing that you want to stick with people? Yeah, great question. So I would say that after reading the book, they have some much deeper insight into themselves. So it's really about opening up new new doors, new avenues, new access points for their own self-awareness. Um, I think that if you start with a that's that that desire, that seeking desire to know yourself as deeply and uh, thoroughly and positively as you can, that is the mm-hmm. most powerful jumping off point for whatever you want to embark on in your life, whether that's uh, a personal endeavor, or as you said, your next job, your, you know, your next big pursuit, um, creating a reality that you want to, to have an experience for your own life. Um, I think if you can tap into um, knowing, knowing yourself most, most deeply and powerfully, then that's where you can start. And for me, these, these big ideas, some of them that I run through um, in, in particular and in detail in the book are, for me, have been really powerful tools um, and access points for kind of my own self-awareness journey. So right. a little bit of that reflexive piece where it's like, you know, I've learned these things, I've been exposed to X, Y, Z, and um, hoping that, uh, you know, the people that read my book will be able to connect with it in a similar way. I feel like that's so, like, that's the hardest thing to do is like, knowing who you are and learning more about yourself and every day is a is a challenge and you learn more and more and that's such a cool thing to have it wrapped up in a book and to hear more about your experience and how most people are feeling these feelings and having it you know verbalized and put down on a pen to paper that kind that visualization of that is that's amazing yeah yeah thank you and you know the other quick plug that I'll put in here too is that I was uh, fortunate enough to get to uh, sit down and have conversations with an interview, uh, a number of really amazing people from across the professional spectrum, um, some that are just dear friends of mine that are out doing really big, cool things in the world, um, all over the world as well. And a lot of their insights on these same topics are in the book as well. So it's not just a oh, that's awesome. you know, my Hansa story about XYZ. It's also um, the, the pieces of theirs are in there as well to help kind of hopefully take some of these these ideas and frameworks and, and try to make them really right. tangible and real and accessible for people and not just, you know, a big idea. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So jumping back before we really dive into, you know, the meat of the book and learning a little bit more about, you know, how you came up with these ideas, we want to know a little bit more about you and who you are, what you're about. So we're going to play lightning round, quick lightning round questions. And so I'm just going to throw out a couple questions, whatever comes to your brain, whatever comes out, just say it. And there might be some follow-up questions because these are some pretty fun ones. So you ready? I'm ready. All right. What is your favorite day of the week? Saturday. How long does it take you to get ready in the morning? Let's say pre-COVID days. Five minutes. <laughs> what? Five minutes? I, I, I'll revise. Ten minutes. Uh, as long, basically wow. as long as it's so I ride my bike to and from the office every day back when we used to oh. have and so yeah. it takes me about as long to get ready as it does for me to pack my bag with my work clothes, <laughs> my, you know, my change of clothes for the work day, et cetera. Um, 
yeah, I'd say about 10 minutes or so, pretty quick. Wow, that's pretty impressive. All right, uh, which late night host do you think is the funniest? Kimmel, Fallon, Colbert, Myers, or Corden? Hmm. I'm going to have to go with Colbert. I think he balances, hmm. uh, he is just wildly funny to me. His sense of humor totally <laughs> does it for me. That combination of the wry wit, um, the sarcasm, that all totally works for me. Um, yeah. I really like how he has kind of grown and progressed from his days by working back with John Stewart um, back in the day. So yeah, I'm going to go with him. Love it. Uh, last song played on your playlist. Oh boy. That's a great question. Uh, I was actually listening to Stevie wonder. Uh, I believe it. So we were playing the whole, my wife and I were playing the entire album songs in the key of life by Stevie wonder reason being, uh-huh. um, we got, we were kind of reminiscing in this, these days of COVID where we don't actually get to interact with other human beings. That much. Um, <laughs> we were lucky enough to meet Stevie Wonder in person. Um, actually, oh my gosh. Um, Obama's inauguration celebration, which was at the convention center. Yeah. Long story that we probably don't. What? Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. We got to, we got to meet him in person back when you could shake people's hands. Um, <laughs> my, my little tidbit on Stevie Wonder is that he is every bit as like wonderful and lovely and warm and congenial and welcoming as you probably imagine he is like times a hundred. So yeah. If any, wow. anyone out there ever gets a chance to, <laughs> to, to meet him, <laughs> I would recommend it. How did you get to go to the um, Obama's inauguration ball? Yeah, we just, um, you know, it was one of those, I, th- I think, I believe, and I'm operating on memory here, but I believe the process is, that you request tickets, and you can do this for any any president, um, you request tickets to their inaugural ball through your congressperson. So you have to go to, um, I think you can just hit whoever your congressperson is, you hit their website, um, they'll have some information about the specific way that you can reach out to them and you know request the tickets. And then I think it's just every, every congressperson gets um, a certain allotment, and it's just first come, first serve. Got it. Basically. So... Little little known, so cool. little known fact, no crazy, you know, <laughs> strings attached or any weirdness. But yeah. Little tidbit of knowledge. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, next one. Uh, fill in the blank. Kanye West is blank. An enigma. Ooh. I'm going with that. <laughs> <laughs> the safe option. Yeah. Uh, do you believe in love at first sight? Absolutely. Interesting. Um, favorite Harry Potter character? Hmm, good question. And if you aren't able to name any of the characters in Harry Potter besides Harry, that, that also answers the question. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I'm going to have to go with uh, Hermione Granger. Reason being, mm. the uh, I think I have a lot in common with her. I think um, just from a from a kind of mental activity perspective, I think I've got like a thousand thoughts whirring away in my brain. <laughs> time and I'm super excited to uh, share my knowledge with other people, whether they want it or not. <laughs> kind of like Hermione. So, uh, yeah, I'll go yeah. with Hermione Granger. That's a good one. Okay, um, favorite city outside of the states that you have visited favorite city outside of the states that's a good question um it's a really small town on actually okay i've got two i'm gonna have to qualify this a little bit first one (laughs) i'll allow it yeah the first one is in is in hawaii it's on the island of Kauai. it's called hanale um uh, it's a little tiny town um i've been there twice once during my honeymoon with my wife and we returned again um, a few years ago. That's a really, really cool town. Kind of like a little like surf bum town type thing. Like so really cool. cool, chill, laid back vibes. Um, all of the natural beauty of that island in particular in Hawaii in general, just really cool spots. So Hanale in Hawaii is one. And I would say the um, the second one is been one time and it's just a, crazy ridiculous place but um I got, and it's not really just a city but it's kind of a, a i believe it's a principality which is monaco um 
So we, we got to go to the south of France a couple of years ago and took a train right over the, quote, border into the Principality of Monaco. And um, yeah, so cool. you know, it's like all the stuff you see in a James Bond movie or whatever. Really right. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I've always wanted to go. It looks beautiful. I imagine everything being gold and just shiny and pretty sparkly much. and that's pretty that's pretty <laughs> accurate i would say yeah yeah <laughs> okay what was your first job like the first time you were actually paid wow okay i actually have a really distinct memory of this um i think i was i have one brother he's three years younger than i am we were both employed at the same time at the same place uh, which was a, a little taqueria, which is a little, you know, restaurant um, in San Antonio, um, you know, Mexican style restaurant. Uh, we would go there for breakfast, probably three or four days a week. We knew the <laughs> well, tiny little place. And as kids, basically, um, for whatever reason, I think I had tuned into wanting, you know, a few dollars in my pocket to spend for something. I don't remember what typically <laughs> But the, uh, and of course, my younger brother wanted to, you know, do the same thing at the time. And so uh, the owner kind of humored us and said, look, I'll let you, you know, wash dishes and scrub pots and I'll give you a couple bucks, you know, for the 20 minutes you're going to do it or whatever that was. Oh, wow. We were there after we finished eating our our (laughs) breakfast taco um, in Texas. So my very first job was a pot scrubber. Uh, probably at eight or nine years old, I would say. Not a real job, but that was my first yeah. memory. So. Some sort of income, yeah. obviously. That definitely counts. Exactly. <laughs> That's so cool. Okay. Uh, second to last question. What is your fondest childhood memory that you can remember? Hmm. Like very clear, distinct in your head. Fondest childhood memory. I um, So... Or just like a really good day that you yeah, remember. Yeah, yeah, So a good day. I like that characterization. I'll go with that. The A good day that I remember, this is actually a story I dig into in my book. Um, so connecting it back to that. Uh, in elementary school, we, uh, we would do this thing once a year called the Math Olympics. Uh, math <laughs> has never been, nor ever will be, my strong suit. Again, like reading and writing. But... Um, I, for whatever reason, um, fourth grade, I believe, uh, fourth grade math Olympics in elementary school, uh, all the stars aligned for me. Um, I got second place in the math Olympics. I was, wow. It was a pretty big school. There were a few hundred kids in my grade. Um, so that was a, a proud moment for me. And I remember, uh, I don't know. I'm not sure what it was about that in particular, who was like, quote, winning or, uh, you know, what, what exactly was it stood out or whether it was like going outside of my comfort zone. Again, math not being a super strong suit of mine, but um, yeah. I did have that, that indelible memory kind of in my head. And like I said, I, I dig into that, that story a little bit more and kind of connect it back to um, some of the big ideas that I dive into a little bit later on too. That's awesome. Do you remember who won? I don't actually. Um, ah. I, I think, and, and, I, and in fact, I think in the book, I even talk about that, that I, you know, everything after that was kind of like a blur, you know, for a blackout. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> oh my God, this is so amazing. Just kind of going up there and getting my, you know, my little medal or whatever for the math Olympics. And yeah, um, d- yeah don't remember anything after that. <laughs> That's so funny. Okay. Last question. Okay. Did you ever go to a sleepaway camp as a kid? Yeah. So most of what that looked like for me when I was a kid, um, I was really heavily involved in Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts. Um, okay. And, and actually was an adult leader in Boy Scouts for my, uh, for my son later on. And um, yeah, so summer or like kind of, you know, overnight type camp oftentimes looked like that. And that ranged from everything from you know, a few nights, uh, all the way up through two to three week, like unsupported oh, wow. country backpacking type trips, that sort of thing. But, um, that's so cool. I took a little bit into one of those stories in the book as well. And now that I'm thinking about it, but yeah, that's, that's <laughs> kind of how that showed up for me most often, I would say. Yeah. So do you do any of those, um, like backpacking trips or those hiking trips anymore? Yeah. Um, I actually went, so one of the, uh, Boy Scouts of America High Adventure Camps is a place called Philmont, 
which is in mm-hmm. northern New Mexico, really close to the border with Colorado. So it's in the Rocky Mountains, um, pretty rugged, like high country. Um, I did a, you, uh, your troop, um, which is kind of the, the local construct in Boy Scouts, um, can apply to send a, a, a group there, a group, a small group of boys and, and adults, uh, adult leaders. Uh, to do a two-week unsupported backpacking trip, meaning you carry everything on your back, you get resupplied once or twice, but you're completely, you're just out there. Like there's no infrastructure really, that sort of thing, um, outside of some kind of backcountry camps. And I did that as a boy, uh, as a Boy Scout. And then I actually got to do that again uh, as an adult leader with my um, with my stepson, Sky. Uh, a few years ago when he was in scout so, cool. so really cool kind of like inflection point to you know try to connect what i remembered about the experience as a boy scout back into what it's like as an adult leader now so yeah so but still still get to do that kind of stuff i still love going camping um as rugged or not rugged as possible <laughs> it's all good with me um with my family i feel like i feel like you would be the type to hike the appalachian trail like in record speed, like you would do it in three and a half months rather than five. That's I, something ridiculous. I would, uh, I've, I've definitely looked into it. Um, I think that's, <laughs> that's, that's for sure, uh, you know, like a bucket list type item. Um, yeah. Maybe maybe even coming up in the quasi near future here. So, yeah, we'll see. Oh, stay tuned. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you for answering my probing questions. Yeah. <laughs> So diving a little bit back into the book, I know you touched on this just a bit in the beginning, but this idea of self-awareness, mm. you know, what is, what's been your journey of getting to self-awareness and like, was there a specific time or moment in your life that you can remember? Like, oh, like I feel good about this or I don't feel comfortable in this. Like how, how did you get to that point um, where you could say, you know, I've reached that point in my life where yeah. I feel like I've, you know, achieved that. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. And the first first point I'll say in response is um, I am still in the, you know, comparatively the early days of my own self-awareness journey. I think that what I've, what I've learned about myself and, and kind of observed in others and some of the, the work that I get to do with the clearing um, coaching and uh, some, some meeting facilitation of a certain kind of stripe um, is that for the people who are truly uh, invested in and interested in their developing their own self-awareness, that journey never ends, right? Like you're on that journey till you leave this earth, basically. Um, so with that caveat, um, I will say that I, I have done the majority of that kind of work for myself at the clearing. Um, frankly, that has been the uh, the engine the motivator um the conduit however you want to think about it for me to kind of get into that work on myself and access it um through a variety of ways but i will say that the for me the kind of turning point was um realizing that i had become quite adept at doing certain things in a certain way and was having a lot of difficulty um, evolving, growing, adapting outside of that kind of, you know, core way of working, delivering and being, et cetera. So um, could you give us like an example of what you mean by that? Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, I, I have, I kind of built my, (laughs) my professional reputation, I guess I would say, for lack of a better term, on being able to connect really deeply with people and use that that personal relationship to deliver, to do things, right? To like get things done. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, for me, that works really well. And it's not always available or accessible, you know, with a, a certain piece of work. Right or individual or team or group or whatever that is, environment perhaps. Um, And what I found is that when I was bumping into those situations where that wasn't available, I was really struggling, right? Like I'm like, how else can I uh, deliver the work that I know that I need to, to the level that I know that I can in a way that's still like doable and tenable, right? Right. Time that I have, Mm -hmm. 
resources that we have, et cetera, et cetera. And frankly, experience a pretty good amount of pain in that way, right? Like confusion, um, you know, uh, not knowing what to do first, kind of that paralysis sort of feeling. Um, and that's when I started to, to really focus in on what's up here, right? It's not, the, the, the whole answer is not uh, this person, this client or this individual is not tuned into it, right? It's, there's something going on with me here too. And so it was that kind of initial spark of curiosity, I would say that, um, that, that kind of got me tuned into that. And then that's when I started thinking about um, what does self-awareness mean to me? Uh, where do I want to begin? And, and, just, mm-hmm. and just starting, right? Just, just put, like I said, pulling one of those threads, not feeling so overwhelmed about, uh, I need to design my entire self-awareness journey or anything like that. Like I did, definitely did not do that. Yeah. And, um, that's how that showed up for me a little bit at first. And um, yeah, kind of my brand on that is just curiosity. I ask a lot of questions of myself and one of the... Um, big kind of like the cruxes of the matter, so to speak, was just realizing that um, I needed to, I, I needed to be and needed and, and should be really, really brutally honest with myself. So um, not misleading myself about uh, who I really am versus the image mm-hmm. I want to project out to my friends and my family and my colleagues and right. um, other people, right? Just be like being honest about that. Um, doing my best to accept myself there and, and then uh, using foundation to, to launch into some of that self-awareness work. So you said you're brutally honest with yourself. Do you like to receive that same type of feedback from your colleagues or your coworkers or your editor or your publisher? Like, do you like that same style of feedback or are you more, you know, risk averse or you don't like the harsh critical, like what's, how do you deal with that? Yeah. What's your preferred working style? I'm yeah, interested. good question. Um, on feedback, I would say that I, I think I prefer to both give and receive feedback in as direct a manner as, as possible, um, which is kind of, it was an interesting realization for me when I actually arrived there because uh, that's not my normal uh, communication <laughs> style, right? It's, it's actually very um I really enjoy and and rely on, especially when I'm doing that personal relationship building thing, that the context and the depth and the you know yeah. the the storytelling, as you said, et cetera. And um, what I found was is when I stuck to that kind of working style or communication style when it came to giving feedback and then also receiving it from other people. For me, it um, it just it just blurred the message, right? Like I had a hard time right. kind of grasping what the, the 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 crux is inside of this this item in this matter, and how can I take it and actually do something with it um, was another thing that that started showing up for me. So um, very direct, which you know maybe mm-hmm. it was surprising for me, maybe not for other people. Uh, it's you know, <laughs> kind of discovering their own version of that isn't surprising for them. But um, for me, it was a big shift on how I how I work and kind of communicate normally. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So how would you describe how, Like, if someone was wanting to become more self-aware and um, more in tune with the working style and the way they think, is there any way that or any advice you could give to help them start from the beginning? Is it just asking those, you know, crucial questions to themselves? Like, what are they trying to achieve? Or is there anything, any way you would you know, tell someone how to begin this journey? Yeah. Um, I guess I wouldn't have specific advice on saying you should do this first. What I would say is because everyone's, everyone's journey is different. Yeah. Everyone's starting point is different, right? Then you may um, be well down that this path of self-awareness and not actually know it, right? Maybe you just don't have the word right. for it to name it as such that doesn't mean that you haven't already begun the work. So I guess what I would say is, again, for me, that critical piece that happened that I, once I kind of did it up front in the process, um, everything became so much simpler and easier for me on my own journey. And was that, was that honesty piece? And the way that I did that is I just held up two things side by side. I said, this is the 
um, the image of myself that I feel like I'm projecting out into the world. And this is what I actually know about myself, right? Like those two things side by side and comparing them and seeing right. where there was, where there was congruence, where there was a lack of congruence. Um, for me, that was a really important starting point. So I think that's, you know, that's one tool that anyone could, could use probably, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's a, um, a framework, speaking of big ideas, called um, the Jahari Window, which is a classical framework to do some of that, to do some of that digging and that self-reflection. Um, breaks those two things up into four, but that, you know, that's, that's one thing that, 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 that others might consider if you haven't done that work already. Um, the other quick piece I'll say, I'll say is that um, some of the, the, the frameworks, the concepts, the big ideas that I have um, broken out in my book are some of, is, for me, is, are, are big stepping stones along that path for my own self-awareness. So um, in, in the book, I'm covering things like um, there's a couple of concepts that are, they're really twins um, they are, they originate from, um, Okinawa, the Japanese island of Okinawa. Um, one is called Ikigai and the other is called Moai. And, um, I talk about those in chapter four of my book. Um, Ikigai basically being, uh, the intersection of four things. Those four things being what you are good at doing. So what, how are you talented? what mm -hmm. you love doing, which may not be what you're good at doing, or maybe it is, what the world needs, and then finally, what you can be rewarded for, right? Like the way that that shows up in Western culture a lot is what you can be paid for, basically. What can you do? Right. So those are the intersection of those four things, um, Okinawans have kind of coined ikigai, right? And really, it's this purpose. It's a reason for being, and it's the intersection of all of those four things. So um, that's just one example, right? Like, and that's kind of, kind of what I'm starting to get into when I'm talking about big ideas, right? Concepts like that, that can, uh, push the boundaries of our own thinking, how we consider ourselves, um, and especially in the context of our environments, um, and the sorts of pursuits that we're, that we're kind of in right now and what we would love to do in the future. That's awesome. Yeah. What is one um, concept or methodology that you talk about in the book that you are, you know, most passionate about? The one that you use in your everyday work life with clients um, or in your own personal life? What's the one that really stands out the most for you that you resonate with? Yeah. Um, so the basis of it, let me, I'll do a little, little tidbit on the foundations of the idea and then get into the idea. Um, over the last three or four years, I have become absolutely fascinated with brain science, just neurology in general, um, and, and have no training whatsoever. <laughs> I am not a brain scientist. Uh, let me just say that now very directly. Um, and when, yeah, right. When I, when I first, when I first learned about um, the basics of brain science, and I'm talking like these are the neurochemicals that are in play in different situations. And here's what triggers your flight or fight response. And here's how that shows up in behavior. And, you know, here's how you get a big rush of dopamine, um, right. And like yeah. different, different sorts of situations, how you can recognize the effects of cortisol in your brain and on your body and how to deal with that. That was a big, big epiphany for me. Um, and I think it's back to this kind of, my nature, which is to just ask a lot of why questions, right? Like, why do I think this way? Why do I behave this way? Why does this person make me feel this way every time I talk to them or interact with them, right? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of in that, that basis of, you know, brain chemistry, for lack of a better term, um, two, two quick ideas that have really stood out for me and that I'm super curious about and, and I'm digging into a lot right now. Um, one is, uh, imposter syndrome, which I think shows up for a lot of people, whether you realize it or not. And the other one is called yeah. the Dunning-Kruger effect, um, which is a really unusual, uh, for me at least framework that, and it's one of those things that's just been super sticky for me. Like once I, once it was named, once it had a name and I kind of understood it, I see it, I just see it everywhere now, right? It's like one of those sorts right. of ideas. So yeah. I've never I heard of that one. So I'm interested to hear more about it. Yeah. Yeah, I dig into both of those ideas. Um, imposter syndrome, 
in the book, as well as the Dunning-Kruger effect, um, the both completely fascinating to me. Imposter syndrome, I tried to um, come at from a very from a specific angle and actually relay the experiences of hyper successful people with imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. right? Um, which for some, it probably is not surprising that those people experience that and maybe for others is, right? And um, I'm talking about people like Sheryl Sandberg and Maya Angelou, um, Neil Gaiman, some other people like that, that um, are from a variety of backgrounds and perspectives and professions, um, not just purely right. professional in nature. Um, and kind of telling a little bit of, of their stories, right, in their own words. So that's one way that I was that I dig into imposter syndrome in the book and also talk about my own experiences with it. Um, that was a powerful thing for me to name again. Um, and the really quickly on the, the Dunning-Kruger effect, the basic idea there, right, is um, that the people who actually know the least are the most confident in their abilities, right? So um, right. most ignorant think they are the biggest experts, basically. <laughs> and the, right. more, the more you learn and know, the more you realize how much there, there is that you don't know. Right. And so you right. kind of get into this space where you're like, I have all of this expertise and experience and exposure, but I consider myself to be right. Like I have very low confidence in my own abilities, basically. So it's a bit right. of a paradox, right? And a little bit, a bit, a yeah. bit of a conundrum. Um, and again, like I'd experienced that with myself and in my life with other people and to learn that it had a name and was a real thing, you know, and not just right. <laughs> some crazy thing that I've been, that I had observed on my own yeah. was both kind of like empowering and vindicating and also just made me even more curious, right? Like I, I just want to dig into it more and more and more. That's kind of my personality. So at any rate, yeah. um, I, 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 I go deep into both of those um, in the book and connect them into, uh, like I said, people, leaders and just regular humans also from uh from different walks of life and around the world i feel like everyone at some point in their life deals with imposter syndrome or going into a job where you feel like you don't know anything and have to put up this this show or um put up this front and it's it ties into that this is my mantra that i live by is act confidently and no one will question you (laughs) that's that, that that's a huge part of it and um yeah, you know, like, so I'll I'll just I'll I'll actually say the words that that one of these kind of big leaders um, say. So Sheryl Sandberg, people are super familiar with, right? Um, from Facebook and and lots of other you know serious professional accomplish, accomplishments from her. One that one that stood out to me as well. Um, the CEO of Atlassian which is a software company, an Australian software company. Um, okay. The CEO of Atlassian is a guy named Mike Cannon Brooks. Um, and as you would probably imagine, this is my story, so just take this with a grain of salt, but as you would probably <laughs> imagine an Australian CEO, billionaire, software CEO, right? Like as you could picture mm-hmm. him, that's how he is, at least in my mind. Um and like on a hovercraft or one yeah, of those little like, skateboards, you, you know, just like <laughs> kind of a cool guy, basically yeah. you know, um, young. And um, he, so this is, these are the words that he used to, to, to describe his own and his experiences with imposter syndrome. This is a direct quote from him. He said, for me, imposter syndrome is a feeling of being well, well out of your depth, yet already entrenched in the situation. Internally, you know you're not experienced, qualified, or skilled enough to, to justify being there, yet you are there. It's not a fear of failure, and it's not a fear of being unable to do it. It's more of a sensation of getting away with something, a fear of being discovered that at any time someone is going to figure this out, right? So it's like, mm-hmm. that, that's how he described the sensation to me. And I guess the the distinction for me there is the words that he said about, right? Like, it's not a fear of failing per se. It's like, I'm, I'm kind of like tricking everyone 
that they think that he's the CEO of this organization, right? He's like, I don't right. really know what I'm doing here so much. <laughs> I don't think I do, right? So yeah, at any rate, um, the, it, mo- I, I think the figure is something like 70% of people experience imposter syndrome at some points in their lives and maybe even, even a pervasive thing. So um, yeah. on this topic in particular, and then also the kind of, kind of, uh, sister idea, so to speak, uh, of Dunning of the Dunning Kruger effect. I think there's a lot there for um, there was a lot there for me to dig into in my book, and I hope that there's also a lot there for readers to kind of sink their teeth into, ask some questions of themselves and other people, um, and learn learn. I feel like in the consulting industry, there's a lot of that imposter syndrome, um, especially for you know new analysts, new consultants, um, just junior analysts. There is this feeling of not being the the subject matter expert or not having all of the content, but being the one in the room having to create conversations around the content. And a lot of the times, I remember when I first started in this industry, I was so fresh or confused and nervous and scared because I'm working on an IT modernization project, but I know nothing about IT. Right. I can barely turn on my TV. So okay. how am I supposed to be, you know, helping industry leaders figure out the best way to save money and be most efficient and, you know, do the most for the American public? I think so many people can relate to this in so many ways because it's this, not the idea of failing, but this the idea of exactly what he's saying, being someone finding out that I'm not the one who owns and holds all the answers and knows the knowledge to everything. I think yeah. that's so relevant and so many people feel that. Yeah, I agreed 100%. And yeah, I've experienced the same thing at work at the clearing, right? We probably, all of our right. colleagues have at, at a certain point or in a certain way. So um, two quick things. The first is that this is one of the things I love most about our about the clearing and our consulting approach is that we don't try to be the subject matter experts in the actual right. content itself, right? The the point being, hey, client and partners, we're never going to know more than you will about IT modernization or whatever whatever that right. work is. But what we can hold on for you or on your behalf or with you is the is this deep deep dedication to a process that will allow you to achieve an outcome. Right, we that right. we can hold and that we are experts in. Um, so I, I love just naming that, right? Like not trying to pull again mm-hmm. back to, to um, Brooks's idea about someone's going to find you out, right? Like not trying to pull right. in the wool over anyone's eyes on that, and just being just naming it, naming it for what it is up front. I love that. Um, and the other interesting piece, you're I think you're spot on. No one, I don't think anyone hires a consultant to not be an expert in something, right? Like that's kind of the point of the of right. kind of paradigm <laughs> in this work. And so it's a bit of a, a paradox again, I, I guess is what I'm realizing, but some of my most successful interactions and consulting engagements have been when, again, I've been radically honest, not only with myself, but with the people who hired me, right? To say, I don't know the answer to this question, right? I think we're here because none of us know the answer to this question. What becomes possible when you just say that, say those words, right? And then get curious about it. Um, I think it's a big pivot over from, well, I hired you to know the answer to X, Y, Z, right? Um, and sets sets everyone yeah. up um, in a position where they can be uh, more productive, more insightful, more profound, and just feel better about things. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think consulting, the key thing you need is curiosity and asking those questions that they can't figure out for themselves. It's almost like being a therapist. It's like they have a problem and you are probing and probing to see what is the root of the issue? Where is this coming from? Where are we being you know, least efficient? And that's that's really the basis of consulting is just being that person and helping them solve problems and being outcome driven and holding the process, like the overall end to end process. I think that's where we come in and we can, you know, show and prove our, the most value that we can provide. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. So what, this might be a, what's a controversial question. What do you think is the biggest or the, the biggest misconception in the consulting industry? That is a good question. 
Uh, actually, I touch on this a wee bit in my book. I don't go deep into it. Um, and it's something that I am super curious about learning more about. It's kind of back to that concept of um, what what it means to be a, a quote expert, uh, this a really powerful individual contributor. Um, mm-hmm. That's that some version of that concept or that paradigm is what a lot of the, uh, 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 frankly, I think any sort of consulting, right? Not just management consulting. It could be something right. like a completely different topic, completely different approach. Um, that personal expertise idea is what a lot of, of that work, I think, is built on, at least in my experience. So what I am curious about is are places and situations and companies and organizations, teams, where I have seen a shift away from subject matter expertise and over to something um, that goes by a variety of names or what I think we could just call it a subject matter network for lack of a better term. So uh, that being, it's much less about the how, how much knowledge and experience um, and anecdotes and connections one person can store in their own brains. Right and much more about the connected network that can serve the same purpose, but maybe that's with five people or 50 people or 500 mm-hmm. people, right? Um, and the other really cool thing for me is that it can be inside of one organization, like a firm, like The Clearing or another company, or it could cut across organizational ties. It can cut right. across geographical boundaries, you know, it could be people from um, all over the United States or all over the world or you, you name it. Right. So mm-hmm. I'm super curious about that um, and what's possible for consultants, especially when um, we become a lot more intentional about naming those subject matter networks and focusing on actually using them, right. Using them and deploying them for, for, for good, basically. Um, and yeah. kind of, away from that whole, I know the number one expert in XYZ field, um, which is still great. I'm not saying that there's not value in that, but um, right. for me, that's, that, that's been a big kind of aha type moment where I'm like, yeah, I think there's probably something important here for me, right? Uh, for myself. Yeah. That's genius. I've never thought of a subject matter network that makes so much more sense. And it, I feel like it's so much more valuable for the group, the good of the group rather than just the individual. And that wealth and that sharing of knowledge is where you find more, you know, subject matter experts is just sharing that wealth. That's, I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I have, I have my good friend, um, Jens Ulrich Hansen, um, who's um, Swiss uh, and uh, is a futurist and an entrepreneur and many different things to, to thank for that concept. So Shout out to Jens. That is not my idea. Um, <laughs> and, um, I, I, Jens is one of the people that I got to interview for my book. So we, like I said, oh, we, we dig a little bit into that, into some of those ideas. I don't go super deep on it. Maybe that's the next book uh, or, or, you know, else, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's a really cool idea. Like I said, that I'm just beginning to kind of scratch the surface on for myself. Um, it's a, I think yeah. it's a concept, you know, that, that's out there that people I'm sure much more, much smarter and more experienced than me have a lot more insight into, but um, it's a, it's a recent kind of discovery and realization for me. Yeah. That's huge. I love that. So diving a little bit deeper into, you know, the actual writing process, what, what, like, I can't even imagine writing a book. What was the journey of that? What does that look like? When did you start? How long did it take? Tell us everything. Yeah. Um, so just at a really high level, the big moves, the kind of big paint stroke, paintbrush strokes, so to speak, are um, we kind of uh, stumped, not stumbled across. We made the connection in with Georgetown um, as the clearing in roughly the January, and this is January of this year, 2020, um, time frame. I kind of um, said yes, basically, to, to kind of walking down this path in late January, then over the course of February and March, it was really that process where um, I was describing a little bit earlier with uh, Professor Kester from Georgetown, 
um, in the mm-hmm. Creative Institute, digging into what that, uh, what I was interested in, what energized me and motivated me. How can we weave some of those concepts together? Do I have a thesis, right? <laughs> like right. trying to push the boundaries on some of that much more sort of sort of sort of early days creative sort of thinking like that and just getting my own thoughts organized and you know putting pen to paper on some of those things um right so first couple of months were large for me were largely dedicated to that and then getting clearer on and again this was using a structure from the creators institute in georgetown which was a total godsend for me here because otherwise mm-hmm. it was right again it was just huge thing it's like how do i even where do I start? How do I begin? Um, right. So at first it was, it was basically just asking myself a lot of questions and then answering a lot of questions, good quality <laughs> writing questions from Georgetown and from Professor Kester and, and the Creators Institute. Um, once I got clear enough, and let me just, uh, I, I still don't feel like I'm, you know, fully <laughs> done with really anything <laughs> for the book, but Um, what I learned too, is that's a part of the process, right? Like it's a, it's a pure creative thing. So I, I, for me, the way that that shows up is I never really feel quote done, right? Like it's always a work in progress. There's always more I probably could do or maybe should do, but yet here we are. Right. Um, so at any rate, when I felt whole enough to move forward from that first phase, that's when I really started embarking on the, on the, on the writing. Right. And the focus there that I actually found really frustrating up front, but then came to love was that my, uh, my developmental editor had a hard and fast word count goal for me every single <laughs> week, right. Every week, every month, and then decomposing that down to a day by day type thing even. And Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, you know, at first it was overwhelming, you know, this is layering it on top of, of full-time work and, you know, um, everything happening with the coronavirus as well and all the change there. But like I said, I, I despised it at first, but I came to love it, right? Because what I learned about myself is without that structure, I'm really lost, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I need that accountability mechanism and even better if it's an accountability partner, like my editor. Um, right. So, so that worked really well. And the next few months were just full court press on content creation, just writing, like writing, writing, right. writing, writing, not even worrying so much about the editing piece or going back and seeing if these are even cogent thoughts that I'm putting down on paper. <laughs> you know, like we worried about that later. So the, the next few months or three to four or so months were just, laser focused on just pure content creation then we came into more of the organizing phase right let's start thinking mm-hmm. about stories and now let's start thinking about chapters and now let's start thinking about how you want to right. organize these does that support your your original thesis does it not that's okay if it doesn't but then how do we evolve that right, um, right. and started organizing it that way um we had some kind of interim milestones. There was a green light milestone where there were a couple factors at play there. You had to hit a certain word count, you know, um, and I think a big part of that is just a signal, right, to the publisher and to um, to Professor Kester and other people that you're actually doing this work. You're actually serious. Yes, you're writing, um, right. those sorts of things. And once you get past that point, then it's really, like I said, the organization piece, um, and once you get to that that end phase, that's where you actually start submitting your manuscript, your full manuscript in for um, all of the phases that you would normally consider with a big work like this, copy editing, mm-hmm. um, just spot checking, um, layout, which has been a really fascinating thing for me, again, that I knew nothing about in publishing. So like, how does your text actually show up on the printed page? How do you want it to look? Um, and so that's what they mean by layout. So a whole big scrub for that and um, more work than I have ever done with <laughs> the Chicago Manual of Style for citations and sources and all of that. I tried to do, I tried to be very uh, conscientious about that and not just make sweeping generalizations about these ideas. I tried to right. really focus on anchoring it in 
what I hope is rigorous social science, citing my sources um, and building my ideas on that. And um, so that, you know, that, that, that was kind of the next phase after writing is publishing. And where I am right now is how I consider it at least to be kind of putting the finishing touches on the publishing piece. This is doing things like um, getting your ISBN number and like uh, choosing the categories that you want to actually use to file your book on Amazon and like other places like that, that sort of stuff. And um, we should be going to print in about two to three weeks or so. So wow, in, yeah, I would say in a matter of about a month, maybe 30 days, somewhere around there in that time frame, I should have um, hard copies of the books in my hand and then it's off to the races. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So soon. When's yeah. your last, like the final edits, when can you submit the last comma, the last period, or is it done? Already done. Already Ooh. done. So, so How yeah, do you feel? Uh, yeah. The, the writing, editing piece, that's done. Right. And so now it's really just that focusing on the publishing aspect. Um, right. Yeah. Setting up, you know, the different um, kind of e-commerce ways that people can kind of get their hands on the book. So that's not all done yet. There's no nothing really yet to point people to at this exact moment, but that will be coming very soon. Oh, amazing. That's so yeah. exciting. It is cool. Ooh. It's uh, it's definitely getting to the, the part of the phase where you can start to see a little light at the end of the tunnel. So yeah, yeah absolutely. So any, any advice for those listening who have a passion to write a book one day or it's on, it's in the horizon. What's, what's the advice? Anything? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I am a big, I'm a big believer in this, of some version of this process that I have gone to where it is um, time bound. There's different layers of accountability built into it. Um, for, for, for me, for my personality, the way that my brain works, I, I don't know that I ever would have been able to actually complete and publish a book without that, right? Without that structure right. that process in place. So um, now that's not the case for everyone, right? Some people are hyper-organized, hyper-self-motivated and don't need any help in that regard. And for them, um, maybe they don't need a, a process or a structure like this. But what I would say to anyone who has ever thought, wow, it would be cool to write a book and then mm -hmm. actually have the energy, right? I think the key is if it's an idea that piques your interest and that you're passionate about, and you have the, the energy to, to kind of dedicate to it. And it is a significant amount of energy and time. <laughs> um, I would highly recommend this approach and uh, wholeheartedly, right? And like, mm -hmm. the, what's the, the, the worst thing that can happen is you get into this process and, you know, something happens. Maybe, maybe you have to table your effort for a little while, right? But um, it's been a hugely, uh, it's been a lot of fun, first of all, on top of, you know, I, that's what I'm, I think I'm going to take away from it more so than the, the long nights and the burning the midnight oil and the stress about <laughs> board counts and all of that stuff. Um, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about other people that I really care about that I got to interview, mm -hmm. um, do some really cool thought partnership with, and I'm just like so excited and looking forward to continuing that journey, getting to meet other people that I hope get to read the book, um, hopefully find value in it and, and having conversations with them too. So long story short, my advice is go for it, go for it, um, give it a shot. And uh, I think you will be really surprised at what um, you're capable of, what you can accomplish if you just um, dedicate yourself to it and find the right structure to support you in the effort. Amazing. Part two, when is it coming out? <laughs> <laughs> I've had a, um, a couple, our colleague Paige, who um, is near and dear to me, says, she, she told me, write the first chapter of your next book before you put the pen down, right? Like before you really leave that mind space of I'm writing, I'm in this work and, I'm, and it is such sage advice. I'm like, yes, absolutely. That makes sense. And the other part of my brain is like, what the heck? Hell what I write about right now. So, <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you, I don't know yet. But um, I, I have a suspicion that that topic, that idea, or at least the germ of that idea might reveal itself as I'm embarking on some of these first kind of conversations after the book gets released. So can't wait. Looking forward to it.
Amazing. That's awesome. Well, Hans, thank you so much. This has been such a captivating and engaging conversation, and I am so happy we were able to have you on the podcast. Uh, before we wrap up, where can our readers or our listeners get their your, their hands on their books? Where can they follow you? What's next? How do we keep up with you and your work? Yeah, great question. So um, I am uh, probably most active just because I'm I'm publishing this book in in partnership with the Clearing, right? Um, in this kind of in this specific context, I'm probably most active on updates on my LinkedIn profile for the time being. Um, and I'm also sharing lots of updates and information on other social media, but I would say for now, LinkedIn. So if you want to get at me at LinkedIn at Hans Mansky, um, H A N S. And then last name is M A N Z K E shout out to my German dad for that name. Um, <laughs> you, you'll see updates there. Right. And in that, like I said, in the near future, um, there, we should have a profile set up for the book on Amazon and Kobo and some other, um, just ways that people can kind of get their hands on the book that way. So that's all coming shortly. Lots more information to come. Um, and I believe we'll, we'll also be putting out some data and some information on it from the, from the clearing social media accounts as well and on our website and some other sources. So stay tuned there. Um, and yeah, in the meantime, like I said, reach out to me on LinkedIn or email, text me, call me, whatever works for people. I'm always happy to talk about it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Hans, um, for taking the time to be on the podcast today, especially as our first guest, aka the the guinea pig for the podcast. <laughs> and we're we're thrilled to have more insights on your book, and we're excited to see where your where your next work takes you. So, thank you again, Hans. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you, Melissa. It's been a pleasure. Had a lot of fun. Thanks, and thanks to all of our listeners for listening, and from everyone here at the Clearing. And as told by, we will talk to you all very soon in our next episode.